105.1 Life FM. You're listening to Bendigo's Positive Choice, and we are here with another positive person, <laughs> a reasonably positive, positive person, Samuel Chisichetti, <laughs> and myself, Alita Robinson, uh, from A Reasonable Christianity, and we're doing our usual one, uh, 12.30 to 1.30 program. It is. How it are is. you, Samuel? It is wonderful, and I think what is more, most beautiful is to be in the studio with positive people because <laughs> we get here and we just get joyful and and smiley and laughing and it's just amazing especially when uh, our legendary Peter Stantham is in the audience well, that's right when in he's the studio. it's great stuff keep, he's here keeping an eye on us <laughs> <laughs> all right so Samuel yes over the last two weeks we've been discussing the topic of end of life yes Specifically, you've been looking at taking one's own life. We looked at three ways that this can happen. Unassisted suicide, when a person takes their own life. Assisted suicide, when a doctor provides a person with the means to take their own life and the person administers that themselves. And euthanasia, where a person dies after a doctor has administered a drug. You started with outlining how we perceive the value of life. One is through the lens of culture. You described this as instrumental value. The second is what the Bible teaches about the value of human life. Mankind was made by God in his image and he breathed life into us. Mm -hmm. This you called our intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So last week we talked about the reasons why people would think to end their lives and one of the main reasons is around pain and suffering, mm -hmm. either physical or mental. Mm -hmm. In our culture today we are... Ev we do everything we can to avoid pain and have therefore become pain intolerant. Mm. The Bible clearly shows us that there is a growth that occurs when we endure pain mm -hmm. and suffering mm. and we can find our peace in our trust in God mm. and the promises in his word. Mm -hmm. Today you're going to tackle the issue of what is the consequence of taking one's own life mm -hmm. and what does the Bible teach us about this. Mm. Okay. Now, um Thank you so much. That's a very, very uh, beautiful, lovely uh, summary there uh, of the things that we've been talking about. And um, as you notice, uh, often when we approach such sensitive topics, we want to make sure that we have rounded everything. At least we've you know, answered as many uh, questions as possible, uh, at least the, the ones we could, we could foresee. And if there is any uh, any question our you know listeners have had as we're talking about the topic uh, that they want to throw in to go okay well you said that but how about this or you said this how about that they can definitely do that uh, they can shoot us send us uh, that to go to a reasonable Christianity Facebook page because uh, we think it's it's easier that way. Uh, instead of finding him, just go find a reasonable Christianity and then send there or go to one of 5.1 Life FM site and just send us a, a question directed to the topic we've been talking. I wanted to uh, highlight something very important that um, before I start answering uh, the question, at least where, where it sits right now. So what happens, uh, at least in God's economy, what happens uh, if somebody takes their own life, uh, it's very, very theologically challenging question that has been uh, discussed by the theologians from you know a, a lot of angles. But there are two that have emerged um, as far as uh, the theological discussion is concerned. Before I jump into that, I wanted to uh, emphasize something that uh, I said at the end of the program last week. Uh, our understanding of 
mental health and mental ill health uh, is quite problematic. And because most people who suffer with this kind of, whether it's suicidal ideation or, or your suicidal thoughts or even going all the way to doing it, uh, often there is a mental element of suffering that they are suffering in. They are suffering, and, and, and it's, when we say somebody is suffering mentally, you notice I, I'm not saying, saying, um, uh, you know, mental illness, because the term itself is, certain terms become so sort of tainted and negative and bad that they don't encapsulate what they should. So I'd rather say that the person is suffering mentally. And I did emphasize that it is not something to frown upon or to feel bad about or to actually make anybody feel bad about if they are having a mental injury. Why? Because when somebody is injured physically, we don't look at them and say, what's wrong with you? Well, no, they are injured physically because they might have encountered a physical trauma. You know, let's say a rock was thrown at them or they stumbled and they've broken their bone. If anything, we go, oh, wow, that must really hurt. Let's go take you to the hospital. Let's take you to the doctors. Let's see how we can help. And everybody surrounds them to do that. Yeah. Whereas when we say somebody's got mental illness, then it would go, oh, something is, ooh. No. Well, it just means that the person has come across a mental trauma. Hmm. Whatever happens to us in our physical realm affects our mental state. Now, some people deal with some traumas more, you know, in, in, in a better way than others. You know, it's like there are people who have physical pain threshold that is higher. Yeah. Okay? And there are people whose physical pain threshold is low. And so if somebody says to you, you know, my foot hurts, you're not going to go, well, come on. What do you mean it hurts? So if somebody has come across a mental trauma or a physical trauma that is then have a repercussion on the mental self, what we ought to do is to give them, you know, a space, enough grace for them to be able to say, I'm actually injured mentally. And so that we can then seek to find a, a, a solution. Now they can go to the hospital. There's also two services that are provided mm. to deal with being mentally wounded. I just, I just want to make sure this is a, a big thing on my heart to say, if somebody is mentally wounded, they should say, well, if somebody said I'm me- mentally ill, it's something bad. It's a stigma. Yeah. Yeah, the stigma. No, it means I've just encountered a trauma that has wounded me mentally and I need some help to heal. Yeah. Anyone from, you know, the prime minister of Australia to the theologians, uh, you know, the philosophers, anybody can come across a mental trauma. Mm. Uh, one of my... Uh, my um, uh, heroes, um, you know, J.P. Morland, uh, very, very bright philosopher, theologian, uh, you know, he struggled with the problem of depression a lot. He, like, it just was there. Yeah. But when you hear the man talks, he's so bright, you know, you can imagine, it just seemed talk in front of audiences of all sizes, and you can imagine, oh, he mentally, well, he's a philosopher, he must got it mentally together. Yeah. And yet he struggled, and he actually struggled even with the idea of taking one on life. Mm. So I mean, this I'm saying this because I heard him talk about it himself. And so he's even written a book on how to deal with this kind of 
situational depression stuff and how he walked through it. So I just couldn't go start to deal with this without making that point. If you're struggling, you're feeling like you've been mentally hurt or even emotionally, it's okay to seek help. If somebody says to you that they're suffering mentally, don't laugh. Don't even have an attitude that enforces the stigma. Just we need to help everyone here. Okay, having said that, um, now let's look at the question that we're going to answer. I'm going to give some preliminary uh, thoughts that will guide us in answering the question to what happens or what is the consequence of, you know, you know, taking one's own life. And I'm just going to give that section pretty quick and then, and then we'll come back to start dealing with the question. Number one, I want to make the clear point that when a theologian is dealing with a difficult question, he strives to interpret what scripture teaches so that he can at least be accurate in the understanding of what scripture teaches. The theologian's aim is not to be nice or to be mean to anyone. Mm. The theologian's aim is to go, is this what scripture teaches? Now, things that scripture teaches, sometimes they could, we can feel nice about it. Sometimes they could be hard hitting. It happened. Jesus did say certain things that were pretty hard hitting. So, and that's, that's the, 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 the first thing I want to, I want to uh, make, make the, the point there. It's like when a, a lawyer is trying to interpret the law. The legislator writes the law, and then when the law is argued in, the, in court, the, the law is just trying their best to interpret the law as the law is written, right? And so that's what just simply they're going to be doing. And that's what the theologian does. And one, one, one more point. Theologians do disagree sometimes, on what was the best way to interpret what the law says, or what the Bible or Scripture says. And if they do, it is just part of the normal practice of trying to understand best what Scripture says. But something is true is that God is the final say about what His Word says. Mm. So that even if the theologian got it wrong now, okay, God is, the result at the end will be God determinative. So that you don't get bogged, okay, the theologian said this and get upset. No, no. The theologian is just doing his best to interpret the scripture as the scripture is read. But God is just, and there is no one who should be in the presence of God who will end up going to not be in the presence. God is so good, so loving, and so just that he will always have anyone who has wanted to be in his presence according to God's word, will be in God's presence. That will give us peace and quiet, regardless of our disagreement on these theological questions. Mm. Well, we're looking forward to uh, hearing more about that. We're going to listen to Charles Bing- Billingsley sorry, singing God is good. There's going to be some hard times. There's going to be some dark nights. There's going to be some deep pain. There's gonna be some tough fights I'm gonna walk some steep roads Feel like there's no hope I might have to wait years On answers I'm praying for Through fire and rain This one thing remains I can say God is good Even when he's not understood If he gives or he takes His 
couldn't have picked a perfect, a more perfect song myself. How great was that? God is good. All right, Samuel, yes. you're going to unpack. Yes. Now, um, from where we were, uh, I therefore want to um, make uh, the point here that um, when two theologians have a different point of view on the reading of Scripture, they then use what is called philosophy. Philosophy means the ability to think through scriptures. Some Everyone present their case, and whether it is a syllogism, whether it is a, a systematic summary, there is this range of scripture that says that you've got to take into account the entire data of scripture. Not isolate some scriptures that say something that you like, and then leave the rest out. Mm-hmm. No, you've got to look the entire data of scripture, and the best explanation is the one that accounts for more data from scripture than less. Now, having said that, then let's look at the case we have in front of us right now. Number one, let's start from things that at least everybody agrees, from the secular humanist to the theologians of either side. It's that way we agree. And you'll see why it's good to start there. The first thing is that everybody agrees, at least start with the secular humanist. Secular humanist believes that taking one's own life is bad. Okay. They do. Mm-hmm. I, I'll show what I mean. Or at least they say it isn't a good thing 
to do, or they think it's not the best way to handle life crisis. Yeah. This is why our state, that is secular, provides all sorts of ways to help people from taking their own life. Yeah. Because if, if it was a good thing, if you saw me going to work, would you try to stop me from going? No, we discourage that which we think isn't the right thing to do. Mm. And we encourage that which we think it's the right thing to do. So, in that sense, even the seculars, that's why we put in all these... If you heard somebody, you even encourage, it's your duty of care. If you heard somebody saying they're going to take their own life, that's your duty of care to call triple zero, to call for help, and try to see whether they could be found, they could be helped if it was... Oh, then someone says, ah, I'm going to have pizza. You're like, sure. Well, you're not going to call, you know, you know, the authority to try and stop them. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Everybody know that or understand, at least believe, that taking one's own life is not the right way to go about things. The question is there for the secular humanist, why is it not the right way? Mm. Now, they could say, somebody could say, well, it's not the right way because it's going to hurt up to 135 people who get him, you know, sort of affected by that. So the argument is based on the other rather than the person themselves. Yeah, the effect on All others. Right? Yeah. Well, now, what if, then I'll go on to say, what if the person had no other to be concerned about? Mm. Would we still stop them if they had no relative, no friend, no, and there's no one who's going to care whether they're gone? And then we heard that they were about to take their life. Would the state try and help them to stay? Or yes. Mm. We won't say, oh, yeah, well, it's got no one who cares. Let them go. No. What I'm trying to say is the argument centered on others doesn't go far enough. It collapses. Yeah. Because we know that life is not supposed to be taken by the person who's there. Even if the secular humanist doesn't believe in God, you can still see by their action that they do believe this isn't the right thing to do. And then, therefore, we go through the question of what makes something right, what makes something wrong. And often, generally in our culture, we'll say, well, each person decides for themselves. Well, what if the person decides they want to do it? You should, therefore, be able to accept it's their choice. It must be for right. Yeah. But we are not doing that. No. It tells you. You can talk. But when it comes to it, your actions will speak louder than your words. Mm. We still believe that this is not the right way to go. I haven't touched any theology yet. No. And so some say, well, because the law says so. Well, well, one would have to assume that the law is always right. No. Aristotle said the law must be predicated on the foundation of morality. Otherwise, it will be unjust and wrong. We, we know when lo laws have been wrong. Yeah. This is why laws get changed. Uh, you know, Gorgon, that's, that law isn't right. Well, how can you, if the law is the source of right and wrong, how can you judge it to not be right? Yeah. So now we head it to what else? Okay, well, is it, is it, you're going to find that the secular humanists will be stuck over evolution. Well, do you, do you evolve to take our own lives? Okay, well, that's, if that's the way to survive and it's an evolutionary mechanism, why do we want to stop somebody from going through the evolutionary natural mechanism? Because mm. we know it's not. Yeah. We end up getting back to God. That's why I'm saying that secularists can climb the mountain of knowledge, and by the time he gets there, he finds that theologians have been sitting on that mountain for a long time. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah.
you cannot say that this is bad unless you you call into a standard of morality and you can't have a standard unless there is a standard setter and <laughs> yeah you see what i mean yeah that's Ravi Zacharias used to say that. That was the best line ever, ever. Um, So you can see there that that is where we stuck. So the question becomes a theological one. Yes. The secular humanist doesn't have much to say about it. He he has the action, but he doesn't have the justification for Mm -hmm. why it's bad. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you come to the theologians, all theologians from both sides of the debate agree that taking one's own life isn't right. When they say it isn't right, it means that it is not doing things the way God prescribed it to be. Because mm. God is the source of goodness, is the source of life. So he gives life, he says there are only few times when life taking is justified. Okay? One, when it's taken by himself. Because God doesn't actually kill people. God moves people from one realm to another. Yes. Yeah. That's what it does. Mm. Okay? So he moves us from this. And, and the realm, the other side is actually the more everlasting, the more, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's far better than this one. But because we're so sort of, you know. Caught up in this realm. Caught up in this yeah. one, we think, oh, what a terrible thing that the person has gone to the other room. It's, it's like you get taken from a, a mad hut to a, a mansion. And those who were in the mad heart said, where did he go? Well, if you ask the person who's going to come back, they'll say to you, I don't want to come back there. Well, at least when God takes, he takes life, he's the owner of life, and he doesn't render account to anyone. Yeah. Because he's good. He's ultimately good. Now, when then, the second way is, if in self-defense, a life is taken. The third way is when it is, uh, it used to be, at least by God's established law in the Old Testament, that if somebody took a life, because no one has the right to take a life because they're not the original author of life, then a life that was taken must be paid with another life being taken. Mm. And it worked as a way God established for people to understand the value of life. Yeah. And the, but, well, some states still doing that and some don't. Now we sort of want to make sure that the person get redeemed as, as far as possible. Okay. Now, the third one is when it happens in a situation of war. There's all sorts of just war theories. I talked about this from the very beginning. So the theologian recognized if life is taken outside the prescribed, prescribed right way by God, then that's wrong. Mm. Okay? It's like you can earn a living in Australia based on the prescribed legal way to earn a living. Let's say if you want to go and earn a living, but you earn a living by non-prescribed way, or at least against what is prescribed, then you have committed an offense. And so, therefore, theologians use the term sin, which means if somebody takes someone else's life, they have sinned. Yeah. It's called murder. Murder is taking unjustified life of someone else. Mm. And therefore, on that principle, even taking one own life, is all the same because there was no authorization from God. There's no place that we scripture says if you're in pain, you're struggling, you're suffering, then God take your life. Yeah. So this is just simply flat out how so all theologians agree on this. Okay. Okay. There is no disagreement on whether when somebody takes their own life it's a good idea. From the secularist to the theologian. Now the way 
the people are, are dif- at least from within the Christian fold, the difference comes in from now that is an offense that's been committed. What then happens because the person has gone to the other side, and if they were a person who dies not being in Christ, a person who takes their own life not being in Christ, had already while they're still here, had refused to be with Christ. And God does not send anyone to hell or to heaven. People choose where they go. Mm. Okay? The same way, uh, you know, I've given this example here before, you know, somebody comes to your house, it's cold and rainy, and, and, and they want to come in your house, it's warm, and the carpet is all clean and everything, but they have muds on them, and you say, look, I've got a standard here, things need to be a bit more clean, do you mind if I give you water to wash, and I give you clean clothes, and warm clothes come, sit here, I'll give you meal and a warm you send the person goes, no, I don't want that. I want to come in your house as I am. Mm. I don't care if I marry your house. And if you say, no, 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 hang on a minute, what? I, I want to help. And you you implore them, you plead with them, and they say, no, 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 no. Then he goes, so hang on a minute, you can't come in my house like that. You know, it's not you who are at fault. The person didn't want to come in your house. Mm. In the same way, the person who dies now without having gone to Christ has made that choice. Jesus hasn't forced them to not want him. But God is so loving that he will never force anybody against their will. So that therefore resolved the issue that if somebody died by whatever other causes without Christ, they've chosen not to have Christ. If they, uh, and, and so if they took their life without Christ, they've chosen to not be with Christ. Yeah. At least I wanted to, I'm doing this step by step so you can see. That one is settled. We know that take, you know, taking life without the prescribed rule, uh, you know, God prescribed way, is bad or is wrong or is sinful. And if somebody then did that without being in Christ, then we already know that they didn't choose Christ. But if somebody was in Christ, what would happen? That's then where Christian theologians will start to argue. Now, I'm going to do the uh, when we come back. I'll give you the two sides. Yep. And I'll confront them, and we can see how we go from there. Fantastic. Don't go away. We're going to listen to Elvis Presley. Take my hand, precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn Through the storm, through the night Lead me on to light Take my hand, precious Lord Oh, 
my hands, I fold. Take my hand, precious love, me home. When the darkness appears and the night draws near. And the day is past and gone. At the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand, take my hand, precious love. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I'm tired, I'm Well, there's only one Elvis Presley, isn't there? Beautiful song. Samuel. Yes. It's all yours. <laughs> okay. Now, here's the second thing that... Uh, the theologians all... 105.1 Life FM is streaming on the internet at life1051.org.au or download the TuneIn Radio app on your mobile or tap... What am I doing? Where else would I rather be Than sitting here at your feet I pour out every Sorry about that. Just pressed the wrong button. <laughs> All right, Samuel, it's yes, up over to you. It is. Um, so what I was saying there um, before we got interrupted was that, so the first thing is the recognition from secular humanists to the theologian that taking one's own life is not the right thing to do. But the theologians got an, a, a point of uh, advancement because they can justify ontologically where good, good and bad and what's right and what is not come from. So it comes from God. So the theologian, theologians got an upper hand over the secular humanist. Now, the second thing that the theologians agree on is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. And... The, uh, at least the mainstream of Christian theology, uh, the, the mainstream uh, orthodoxy doesn't depend on this. You, if you go toward, you know, progressive Christianity, it's, it, it's, it's a different, different story. And, and so, but the orthodox position of the church over 
the years is uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 27, uh, which reads that it is destined for men to die once and after that to face judgment. In other words, all theologians agree that once somebody is passed to the other side, there is no uh, you know, possibility for repentance or for change of mind. Okay. Mm, yeah. So everybody agrees, uh, at least to that. I think the main uh, stream of Christian theology agrees that death is the final frontier. Once crossed to the other side, there is. It's now facing God. That's it. That yeah. It's given to die once and then face uh, face the Lord in that sense. Where theologians disagree is whether that sin or that wrongdoing will impact the salvation of the person who already was saved here, who has then taken their life and gone to the other side, whether the salvation they acquired is impacted by this particular wrong or this particular sin, uh, because are you saved and say saved, or can that salvation be lost? So it becomes a once saved, always saved, or can somebody lose their salvation? That's where the argument is. Right. Now, the argument of those uh, on one side, I'm going to pick the first side. The first side goes, well, taking one life is, is sin. And if one takes one life, it actually crosses the frontier to the other side. And there is no repentance to the other side. Therefore, you can see that sin that was unrepented of will then have the consequence of separation from God. Okay, so that's this basic case that has been, uh, you know, put the the generally the Catholic Church um, uh, and most of the by Catholic, I mean not only the Roman but also the historic Church mm. maintain that position. And but now within some uh, Protestant Protestant mainline Protestant denominations, there has been a different argument that has been made, and the argument goes that. If we, and I'm going to quote here one of my mentors with whom I have a different point of view. Uh, oh, no, okay. Well, I, 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 he's, he's one of my mentors, and, and, and his point of view here, I found it, you know, to not be as strong and convincing enough. And, and I'm happy to quote who he is because he's a mentor of mine. From distance, I've met him in person, and I've told him how blessed I have been by listening, uh, learning from him. And he's Gregory Cockle. From Stand to Reason. I was reading, I was listening to one of his podcasts just this morning as part of my preparation. And here is, uh, it goes that the, 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 the problem with the view that I've presented earlier, because it's presenting a counter view, mm. is that we understand repentance to be, no, many people assume that repentance is don't do this. So action based. So I'm going to be reading what he says. So he goes, okay. If you don't do this, or if you stop doing this, and that's generally what has been understood as repentance. And if that's what repentance is, then it's as though the person must stop what they do, works, before they come to Christ. Whereas that's not the repentance, is change of mind, turning from away from an object, from something towards something. Mm. 
The word repentance in Greek is the word metanoia. Meta, which is change, where we get the word metamorphosis from. Phosis is change of form. When it says metamorphosis, it's a change of form. Metanoia is the change of nusa, which is the change of mind. Okay. So he's saying, no, no, it's not change your actions, then you will be, you'll be accepted by God. It is change the way you think, turn toward God, and then your face will be turned toward Christ. And so he's therefore saying that the person who attribute repentance to be action-based is saying that salvation is a matter of action. But if then salvation is acquired by action, then it can be lost by actions. Okay, yeah. So that's his case. Mm. So that we don't have, therefore, to, the Bible says, he, call, he gives some quotations, um, where he says uh, that if you read Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 21, he says our repentance is toward God in faith and faith in Jesus. And so he says, I'm quoting here, if repentance is works, then if you didn't do those works, you'd, you'd then be going to hell. But you cannot repent from every sin. He gives an example, you know, God gave us the greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor and love yourself. Nobody does that commandment perfectly. No. So in other words, basically everybody is sinning in some, he even says, he himself doesn't remember any time when he's actually done that commandment of love, God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Mm. Therefore, if that's the case, anyone and everybody will, therefore, lose their salvation. Mm. That's, the, that's his case there. So, he goes on to say, if Jesus came to cancel out sin, sin cannot cancel Christ. Not even suicide can separate us from God's love. And quoting Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we cannot gain our salvation by works, therefore cannot lose our salvation by works. So that's the other side. Right. So one side says, well, I repented of when sin was committed, therefore, you know, God's law was broken, and therefore, separation from God is warranted. And the other side said, no, 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 no. There's nothing you can do here that can separate us from the love of God. That's where it boils down to. Does that, that make sense so yeah. far? Okay. Yeah. So that's where the debate is. So it is like, it is like no, no other sin. And so let me now assess the two sides. The side of the other case uh, is making the case that we can find in Scripture in a number of texts within Scripture that seems to infer that people, if they do not abide in Jesus, if they don't abide in Jesus, they could find themselves cut off from him. One of the big ones, at least from Jesus' own words, is John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Mm. If you abide in me, and abide in you. And we go on there. And he goes on to say, but anyone who doesn't abide in me, my father who is the vineyard owner, will chop such a branch, and that branch will be thrown into fire. Yeah. Now, Jesus said that. Now, the theologian who was struggling with the idea, well, okay, well, can, why would a branch that is already attached in Jesus, that then doesn't, because he said, you are... You abide in me and my word abide in you. That is a, that's, that's a condition. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you bear fruit. 
So if you don't bear fruit, it's because my word doesn't abide in you. Then my father will cut and will check it. Yeah. So some theologians go, well, that text there, unless you apply some other sort of you know, hermeneutical exercise, it seems on the first value that Jesus is saying even those who are already in him as the vine could be cut off if they didn't abide in his word and his word abide in him. But let me give you one text that is quite a lot more uh, up there uh, for the case of those who believe that if you cross the other side without having repented, you might lose. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verse 27. And just bear with me because this is a theological discussion and scripture must be read uh, to be able to make the case. We're going to read, uh, I think it is better if we read from verse 26. He he goes on to say, say, the writer of Hebrew, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of 203, verse 29. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Very, very strong word. Now, you know, what I do with sort of, you know, I like to sort of reach out to go, well, given the point of view you have, how do you read this particular text? But this text on its first value says, blood of Christ cleansed, Spirit of grace received, and if somebody goes on to sin, then they have trampled forth the. It's down. It's. I'm just presenting the two sides. Just bear with me, okay? One side presents, okay, well, you've said that, that no one can, nothing can separate us from the love of God, but here is the text in John, and there's more text like this. So there's a text in Revelation which says that, you know, if you're not neither hot nor cold, I will. You know, spit you out of my mouth. What does the Lord mean there? He's talking to the believers, the church. Okay. Now, so the second thing to say uh, uh, to those who hold unto one saved or saved, if no sin will ever separate us from God, because this is it's quite an, a, a, a sizable position to take. Mm. Well, okay, and, uh, because his case is, if any sin that happens when you die, like it's happening when you die, then that sin needs not to be repented of. We can't lose. And that's, that's Gregory's case. Well, in that case, how many people should any, how many lives can somebody take before it matters? Let's say somebody took 10 lives and then took their own because they sinned and then died. Yeah. On their view, I would like to sort of hear a response because uh, I want to hear the both sides uh, going at it, at it. On that view, I'm sure that there's going to be a cut off. Hang on, no, no, too many lives. What, what if a pe- person who's yeah, a person who is a, a a parent who you know took their family loved one life and then took their own? Would that warrant going, you know, losing their relationship with God, the love of God? Is what exactly? Where is the cut off? Becomes the question. Is there a biblical justification for it? Asks the paper from the first case. 
And so it becomes quite a, a, a difficult question there to answer. And I'll then say some of the few uh, last remarks as, as we finish off. All right. Well, we're going to hear Mariah Peters, You Carry Me. All the songs have been great this this afternoon, haven't they? You carry me, Mariah Peters. So you're going to carry us to the end, Samuel. You're going to give us. So here we are uh, in dealing with this very sensitive topic. Because I said to you earlier, remember when I started to say the aim of the theologian is to keep biblical fidelity, and so these two sides, uh, looking at the the um, uh, the way it goes. I want to go back and, and, and notice that the definition of repentance that uh, at least my mentor, uh, Greg Coco uh, had presented, uh, had the assumption that those who believe that once somebody crosses that line, 
to face God with this unrepented of sin, uh, they just simply considering repentance being an action. It actually is not. It's not how they look at it, because often the taking of one's own life does not happen accidentally. No. It doesn't. It's not a sort of an accidental action that happened. Mm. Often it is thought through the pain, of course, through the pain. It's elaborately planned. People start by ide- doing ideation and think of ways to do it and think of what they will say to those who sometimes something, even if they're not. So it's like having an entire way of thinking that says, I've got pain and the way to deal with it is to finish and this life. Okay? Whereas scripture says, that's, that's a, an entire way of thinking. Mm. So the person is basically, when we say turn toward God, it means turn toward Him. When you change your mind, it means you change the concepts and the precepts upon which you operate. Yep. Okay? So, that's what metanoia means. Metanoia means change your mind and turn toward God's ways. It's not as though you were turning to face God just so you can see His face. It's to turn toward Him and His ways. Because, like, like Isaiah says, we all like sheep. <laughs> we're, you know, We've gone lost astray. Each, yeah, yeah, lost or gone astray. Each one gone his own way. Yeah. It's like the book of Judges that says, in those days, each person did whatever was right in their own eyes. Mm. So, faced with God, God said, this is the right way to do it. Okay? It's like I was saying, there's a law in Australia that said, this is the right way to earn a living. And that's if I was really struggling and I wanted to still earn a living and I went and did it the illegal way, the law would still have to apply. Mm, yes. So the idea that repentance is action is not espoused by those who think that when you cross to the other side, because there's an elaborate process of thinking, struggling with the pain, the injury, and so on and so forth, and elaborately thinking about how to do this. And then, uh, uh, speaking from experience, I did attempt to take my life. Mm. I thought about it long and hard. I went and bought what it took for me to do it. I planned how I would do it so that it doesn't disturb the people who, with their kindness, said, actually welcome in their home. Now, let's say throughout that entire process, God's word said to me, hey, you can give me your pain, you can give me your struggles. Come unto me, you who are heavy laden and weary, I will give you rest. Mm. And so you can say, but the person, what if the person prayed and the person said, Lord, I give to you my worries. Okay. I get that. Praying and saying, Lord, I give you my worries, actually different from actually giving those worries. I'll give you an example in our everyday life. Let's say, you know, I called a friend and said, hey, can you come and pick me up because I need to go to work. But I really didn't think the friend would show up or I thought it was sure, but I'm still nervous whether it's going to come or not. So I stand there and my, my heart is still not at peace. My heart's still beating fast. Will he, will he not? Will he, will he not? Whereas if it's a friend that I know who's really trustworthy, that I know I can trust him. Once I've said, can you pick me up? I'll go about my day. I'll get dressed. There's no point at which I'm going to be anxious in my mind. Will he, will he not? Yeah. Now we all have struggled with the idea because God is immaterial and is invisible. We struggle with the idea that, okay, I'll put this to God, will he, will he not? 
And often when we give to God our worries and our anxieties, there is always something he will ask us to do in his word. It's like when I go to the doctor and say, I've got pain here. The doctor says, okay, well, here's the pill, here's that pill, take it. Yeah, or this exercise or that exercise. Yeah. yeah. Or go home, just sit down, relax, I, I strain my ankle. The doctor says, go put your foot up, don't do nothing. Now, I'm a very busy person, I'm tempted to do something. You definitely are. Okay. So if I went and did something and when I said, but I accepted what the doctor said. Mm-hmm. I actually told the doctor my pain, but I didn't take his advice. Yeah. Then I didn't actually give my worries to him. So when we turn toward God, we think about, there are, the Bible tells us the stories of people who have suffered some of the, the pain that if we suffered today, it would be dramatic. Think of Job. Mm. The man who lost everything, lost his children, got sick, he had all sorts of sort of sores on his... The Bible says he had sores everywhere, including on his tongue. He couldn't eat. Mm. He was in the dust. He was in ashes. The man was in the worst pain possible. Well, God didn't cause it. The devil did. But the reason why the Bible tells us the story is because irregardless of those that pain, God still... Was he actually got to say, Job is so righteous that there is nothing that will make him walk away from my ways. Mm-hmm. So what I'm inviting as uh, today we are believers, uh, this has been, somebody asked me if there's something that I would teach and teach nothing else as a, as a Christian teacher, I would teach one thing, that God is God, is perfect, is good, is love, and his ways are just and upright and, just, and righteous. Mm-hmm. And that we ought to let him be God. That even when he says to us, do this, and with all our thinking and all our stretching our mind, we cannot understand why that would be any beneficial. Because he is God, we would go and do what he says. All right? So there is a lot of scripture prescription on how to deal with the pain, how to deal with the suffering. And we ought to encourage anyone who is struggling to seek help, which is we've done tremendously throughout this program, mm. seek help. Seek counseling. Go to God's word. If you believe that this is the authoritative, I'm, I'm holding my Bible right now for those on, on the radio. If the Bible is the authoritative word of God and it is absolutely the way to live, then we can hold tight unto it. And the Bible doesn't say the best way to deal with our pain is to take our lives. No, that's right. So in that sense, I think as concluding here, the case for those who say once saved, always saved, has got more loose hands than the case of those who say, well, we've got to watch on, on over our salvation with fear and trembling. Mm. That there is, no one is saved by works. No. So that no one would boast. Yeah. It is by faith and trust in Jesus that we are saved. Mm. But once we are saved, we like we've been engrafted to the vine, we live and abide in his word, and his word abide in us. And if he said to his apostles, that those who persevere till the end shall be saved. Mm. Like you can find those scriptures, he said it in Mark, in Matthew, he said those who persevere, he said they will, they will deliver you into the hands of the rulers, they will torture you, they will do all sorts of things. And this is when he's talking about all the people doing that to you. Yeah. In, in that sense, even, even for us, 
you know, it is somebody made terrible comments, it's social media posts, is it somebody rejected me? People do things so that injure us mentally and emotionally. But then scripture says, when that happens, you persevere in me. Mm. You say, it hurts, yes, but Jesus is on my side. But if we have espoused instrumental value, we think, well, now that people have rejected me, I have no worth anymore. But if we espouse the intrinsic value, even if people rejected me, Christ is still with me. There is no reason for me to turn around because people rejected me and now reject Christ, what I'm saying, reject his ways. Mm. Go against his ways because people have treated me poorly. I wanted to do that. And he said to me, don't do it. I mean, he could have said it through scriptures, but he came, actually spoke to me. I heard his voice in my heart in a way that I had to hack up against it. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, if he, uh, you know, let, let me close here, Pastor, to say, you've got, uh, you know, a family member who has gone through that particular type of situation. I want to say, as I was saying earlier, God is the determiner at the end of it, mm. of it all. Maybe theologians might get it wrong. This debate can go on until Christ comes. Theologians can get it wrong. Yeah. But I want to assure you, at the end of time, God who is just. God is righteous. Will make sure that everybody who's supposed to be in His presence is in His presence. Mm. But my word is to you who's still alive. Let that decision be in the hands of God. Yes. You focus on Christ. Find a way to go through life when challenges come. Turn to Christ. Turn to His words. Abide in the vine. That is the gospel. And so that is what I would like us to. Uh, remember at the end of this entire process. So you've seen all the debates, but pastorally I would say, let all seek Christ and find comfort in Him. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Samuel, for um, the last uh, few weeks of, of unpacking uh, that particular topic. It's um, it's a very sensitive topic, and it is something that. Um, that lots of people think about, and it does certainly affect a lot of people. So if this program has uh, affected you and uh, you need to talk to someone, please reach out to Life 105.1 Care Line. The Care Line is four, uh, sorry, 5407 2044, and uh, someone will talk that through with you.